Hello, and welcome to the Lancet podcast. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. In this week's podcast, we will focus on a study that looks into how a pharmacist-led information technology-based intervention could reduce errors in the prescription of drugs and is actually quite cheap and easy to implement. The study was led by Professor Anthony J. Avery from the Division of Primary Care, University of Nottingham Medical School, Queen's Medical Centre. And I'm pleased to say that Professor J. Avery joins me on the line. Hi, Professor Avery. Hi. Thanks for taking the time to tell us about this study. Can I start by asking you to outline the aim of the study? I understand that medication errors are potentially avoidable and more common than we might at first assume. Yeah, well, prescribing errors are not uncommon in general practice. Uh, Depending on the definition used, then approximately 5% of prescription items will be associated with an error, and sometimes these lead to harm. For example, around 4% of hospital admissions are associated with prescribing errors. We've done a lot of work to identify the most common and important prescribing errors in general practice, and we've found that some of these can be detected using GP computer systems. And so we decided to develop and test an intervention aimed at correcting these errors before patients come to harm. So we knew from previous studies that simply feeding back uh, data or information to practices would have likely to have minimal impact uh, on on, uh, improvements. And so we decided to test the effects of combining computerized feedback on patients at risk of prescribing errors uh, with education and practical support from a pharmacist. So this is what we termed the pincer intervention that we uh, tested in our pincer trial. Could you describe a little bit more about what the pincer intervention is and the methodology behind how you rolled it out across GP practices? Yeah, so we first of all started by developing uh, what might be called prescribing safety indicators. These are the outcome measures that we used, so the, the prescribing errors that we wanted to, uh, to look at. We then developed ways of uh, identifying patients at risk of those errors by doing searches on uh, GP computer systems. And GP computer systems in the UK uh, in general practice are pretty sophisticated. We've got um, virtually all the information there is on the patients. We have all of their diseases or morbidities coded. We have all their medications coded. We have uh, all information on any blood tests and things that they they may have had done uh, on the computer. And so it's possible to run searches to, for example, in a simple case, identify patients who have asthma who are being prescribed beta blockers, and beta blockers are generally uh, considered not to be good to be used in in asthma because they can cause exacerbations of of asthma. So that would be an example, but we can do more sophisticated ones looking at uh, whether patients are receiving uh, blood test monitoring, for example, when they're on drugs such as methotrexate or lithium uh, or many, many other other drugs. So developing those searches was... uh, an important first step, and that was a very time-consuming process, picking up all the relevant uh, codes and testing that out to make sure that it worked and identifies as as many patients at risk as possible. So we'd run those searches uh, in the general practices, and that would then produce uh, a a user-friendly list uh, for the practice uh, of 
the problems we detected for which specific patients so that practice would have that available um, to, to work on. Now, in the what we called simple feedback arm of the trial, that's all the information that practice were given, and they were asked to then get on with that and try and make changes. In the pincer arm of the of this study, then what we had was to arrange for a, a pharmacist to work with the practices on a part-time basis over a 12-week period. And to begin with, they would go in uh, and meet with as many of the GPs as possible, plus other relevant staff such as the uh, practice manager and plus nurses, receptionists, um, to actually discuss the study and the feedback that we'd had from the computer search. Now an important element of this was what's called educational outreach. So it's actually having an you know, adult discussion with the people in the practices about the problems that have been picked up and about the evidence associated with whether indeed you know, it is a problem prescribing beta blockers to patients with their asthma or indeed whether it is important to regularly monitor patients' blood tests when they're receiving drugs such as lithium and methotrexate. Following that and, and actually then showing them uh, the information about how many patients have been identified to be at, uh, at risk, uh, then there would be a discussion around an action plan and how the practice and pharmacists wanted to work together to try and correct the problems that had been detected. So having done that, then, then the pharmacist would then be sort of armed to sort of go, go away and try and sort things out. One of the most important things to begin with is that, uh, that sometimes GPs were a little sceptical about whether the problems we'd picked up were indeed problems. In other words, the, the patients had been identified. Some would say, oh, surely we haven't got patients who've got a history of peptic ulcer in the past and we're prescribing non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to them with no uh, gastro protection. And so the pharmacist would, first of all, just, just go and look in the records of those patients and indeed in most cases actually confirm that, that, that actually the patient was at risk and having shown that to the GP then the GPs would by and large then agree that uh, something needed to be done about this and that uh, could vary from contacting the patient uh, by, by phone or bringing them into the uh, practice uh, more commonly to discuss their medications either with the pharmacist or with their uh, usual GP to try and tackle things say look this particular non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug is not a good idea when you've got a history of peptic ulcer. I think we should try you on a different painkiller. Uh, or if, if you do want to try the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, we ought to at least be trying to give you another drug to protect your stomach and against the risk of having a, a further um, ulcer. Or in other cases, uh, it would be a case of uh, bringing patients in to have blood tests uh, that are considered to be necessary uh, when patients are taking certain medications. Uh, and then in addition to, to that, then the pharmacist would, for example, in terms of blood test monitoring, actually work with practices to see if they could improve their sort of systems so that actually fewer patients would have these problems in the future. So that actually, for example, with respect to drugs such as lithium or methotrexate, that uh, systems would be set up so that patients would get regular monitoring without having to necessarily run computer searches to identify uh, the patient who'd slipped through the net. So that's really the way in which it, it, it worked. It was very important for the pharmacist to build up relationships with the uh, practitioners and also important for them to work with the rest of the team and particularly have a working relationship, for example, with a practice manager to help sort of coordinate their activities. And for the purpose of the study, which errors did you focus on and why? Well, there was a large number of things that we could have focused on and what, in a sense, we wanted to do with this study was to 
try and I get proof of principle that this sort of approach of, of running computer searches and having pharmacists working with practices could be effective. So the first thing we needed to do was to find a number of uh, prescribing related problems that were common enough that uh, we could do power calculations and, and in the size of study that we, we did would be able to detect a statistically significant difference if indeed one was uh, going, going to be there. Uh, and so that's why we had three primary outcome measures. The first one was looking at patients with a recorded history of uh, peptic ulcer to identify patients who were receiving non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs without also receiving uh, a proton pump inhibitor or cover for uh, uh, protection against a, a stomach ulcer. Uh, the second one was patients uh, with asthma who were being prescribed a beta blocker. And the third was uh, patients aged over 75 years uh, who were being prescribed either angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors uh, or loop diuretics uh, who'd not had a recorded check of their renal function and electrolytes in the previous uh, 15 months. So these things, three things were, were things where uh, using the Q Research database before we uh, actually did the main trial, we were able to show that these were common enough in general practice that um, there was a, a reasonable chance that if the, the intervention was effective, then uh, we would be able to show that um, statistically. We then had a, a range of uh, secondary outcome measures, and I won't, um, won't go into all of these in, uh, in, in detail, uh, but, but quite a number of these were uh, relating to you know, what would have seemed to be perhaps not quite such common, but nevertheless still important prescribing-related problems, quite a number of them to do with drugs that are seen to require regular blood test monitoring. So, for example, patients receiving methotrexate often for rheumatological or dermatological conditions, checking whether they'd had a full blood count uh, recorded or a liver function test recorded in the previous three months. If not, those patients would be identified. Uh, identifying patients who were receiving uh, warfarin, an anticoagulant, and picking up any patients who did not have a recorded international normalized ratio within the previous uh, 12 weeks. Uh, patients receiving lithium, again, picking up any patients who'd not had a lithium level recorded within uh, three months. And patients receiving amiodarone, uh, picking up those who'd not had a uh, recorded measure of their thyroid function test in the previous six months. Um, so they, those are the the examples of the secondary outcome measures, there were sort of 10 things that we looked at all together, and then we also had a sort of composite outcome measure which looked at patients with any sort of prescribing-related problem. Uh, that's like the prescribing of uh, uh, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to patients with uh, peptic ulcer or prescribing beta blockers to patients with asthma. Uh, or the other one, the other composite what measure was looking at uh, uh, any patients with monitoring-related problems. So the scope of the study was large. You had 72 general practices enrolled across the UK, which amounted to almost 500,000 patients in the patient list. Could you briefly outline the results? Yeah. Um, we looked uh, to see whether there had been any differences between the simple feedback group and the pincer intervention group at six months after the intervention and 12 months after the intervention. Uh, we decided that the six-month point was the one that we wanted to particularly focus on. So that was the sort of primary uh, analysis was conducted uh, at that point. Uh, so specifically at, at six months, 
there was in the pincer intervention group compared to the, uh, the, the simple feedback or control group, there was a 42% reduction in the numbers of patients receiving non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, with a history of peptic ulcer uh, who were not also being prescribed a proton pump inhibitor. There was a 27% reduction uh, in patients uh, receiving beta blockers if they had a history of asthma. And there was almost 50% reduction in patients aged 75 years and older receiving loop diuretics or ACE inhibitors uh, who are not having a blood test uh, monitoring. There was also reductions in terms of our composite outcome prescribing and monitoring errors and also reductions for several of the um, uh, secondary outcome measures. Uh, in terms of the 12-month analysis, uh, then there were still statistically significant uh, uh, findings across uh, quite a number of the uh, outcome uh, measures. The one relating to prescription non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to patients with peptic ulcer was no longer uh, statistically significant. So I think there was a sort of slight lessening off of the effect at, um, at 12 months, but nevertheless still some statistically significant differences. Uh, and overall, at six months after the intervention, in terms of our cost-effectiveness analysis, we found that the cost per error avoided was uh, £75. Yeah, that leads me nicely onto my next question, which is basically, in your experience, do you think that GPs would be willing to pay £75 per uh, error avoided? And is there a kind of a figure floating around for the current cost of medical errors that would put that £75 into perspective for our listeners? Well, first of all, in terms of putting it into perspective, there's not necessarily a lot of data out there on the costs of error. But in relation to, to what I said earlier um, about prescribing errors being associated with um, hospital admissions, uh, then a study done by uh, Per Mohammed and colleagues, which was published in the BMJ in 2004, looked at medication-related hospital admissions and, and found the projected annual cost across England, even in those, those days, was uh, £466 million. So if we seeing that some of the patterns of prescribing that we're looking at in our, in our PINSA trial uh, are, are those that then are associated with patients being admitted to hospital with drug-related problems. You can see that it is, a, it is a big problem in monetary terms for the NHS, and therefore, if we can reduce prescribing errors, then uh, that should have a knock-on effect on hospital admissions and the associated um, costs. Now, in terms of uh, the point in terms of um, willingness to pay, then um, I think it would probably be, rather than individual general practices, uh, primary care trusts or the successor organisations, clinical commissioning groups uh, that would be deciding on whether or not to pay for this intervention. And so they'd need to be convinced that the costs are worthwhile. But I think it's worth noting for a start that these organisations already employ uh, pharmacists who work with general practices. Uh, and so in, in one sense, if this was decided to be you know, an important intervention and, and worthwhile investing pharmacists' time in, then it could be that within existing resources, then there could be a shift of the work that the pharmacists were doing towards this type, type of work. So it wouldn't necessarily mean new investment in, in the NHS, although obviously that would be helpful, uh, but it, it could potentially be done within existing resources. What a lot of the PCT or community uh, clinical commissioning group pharmacists 
uh, concentrate on at the moment uh, in many places is the control of prescribing costs, which of course is a, an important uh, issue. Uh, but I think increasingly they and we are finding that the low-hanging fruit are, are, are not there anymore and, and it's increasing, increasing the amounts of effort are needing to go into sort of saving smaller amounts of, of money. And so I think the time is actually ripe for a sort of shift in the activities of these pharmacists so that, that more of their time is spent on prescribing safety issues and, you know, using something like the sort of pincer intervention uh, would be a, a good example of that. And finally, what does the future hold for your research? Are we likely to see an intervention like this deployed anywhere soon? Well, we've liaised with the Department of Health about our results, um, and they are very positive. I think they're very positive to see that um, we, we've shown a positive result here uh, with the PINSA trial and shown the effectiveness of uh, pharmacists working with GPs uh, to uh, reduce prescribing errors. So I think they are keen to see uh, if this type of intervention could be rolled out. And so we're working with them and with a number of primary care trusts uh, to see whether this, this would be possible. It's certainly uh, possible in the sense that we have the uh, search terms already available, uh, which we've used in the trial, and, and we've shown that uh, the intervention's effective, and, in, and we have pharmacists working, as I said, with the uh, clinical commission groups or PCTs. So I think it's a, a case of now seeing if we can then roll that out so that, that it can be used in clinical commission groups and PCTs uh, across the country. Uh, the other thing to say on that is that, as I mentioned earlier, then in many ways the PINSA trial was a proof of principle that actually using this type of approach could be effective, that actually by doing these searches on clinical computer systems you identify patients at risk and then uh, intervene with them. And the outcome measures we had was just a sort of range of different different things that one could one could look at. We've actually been doing further work uh, to develop uh, more prescribing uh, safety indicators. We, we published a number of these in the British Journal of General Practice in 2011, and we're actually doing further work to develop more. So what I would like to see for the future is us having a, a sort of bank of perhaps sort of 60 or so uh, prescribing safety indicators, and that one might then be periodically, you know, every, every couple of months, for example, running on your computer system uh, 10 or 15 of these, identifying the patients at risk and intervening to um, uh, um, correct the, uh, the problems for those, those patients. And then a couple of months later, uh, then actually running, you know, next set of 10 to 15 indicators and, and then having a sort of rolling cycle so that perhaps every year one would be going through these indicators in, 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 the, in the practice to try and make sure that prescribing is as safe as possible. In a way, it's providing uh, a, a safety net uh, that if patients have slipped through that net and, uh, you, you know, not getting the essential blood test monitoring that they need, for example, then we can uh, pick those up and uh, take corrective action before the patient comes to harm. Thank you, Professor Avery. The PINSA study was published online on February the 27th and features in this week's print issue dated April 7th to the 13th. There is also a linked comment available online in print by Dr. Jeffrey L. Schnipper, where they summarise that the PINSA trial is indeed important, but say that further research is needed so as to understand better how to successfully implement such interventions as broadly as possible. And with that, all that's left for me to say is goodbye and to thank you all for tuning in. See you next week.